Well, good morning. My name is Jeff Wilkins, and I'm one of the pastors here at Zion Presbyterian Church. And if you're visiting with us today, we are so thankful for your presence. And my prayer is that you would experience the warm embrace of our love in Savior through the, the body of Christ here at Zion Presbyterian Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John 14. Uh, for context, we've printed in the worship bulletin on page 10, uh, beginning at verse 31, or yeah, 31 of chapter 13, but we're really going to focus on verses 1 through 11. It can also be found on page 900 of your pew Bible. Uh, as you turn to find the passage, I want to ask you a, a couple of questions. If you knew that you were going to die in 24 hours, what would you do? Who would you want to see and spend time with? And perhaps most importantly, what would you want to say? This morning we are starting a new sermon series ramping up toward Easter and we're going to be working our way through what has become known as Jesus' Upper Room Discourse, or Jesus' Farewell Discourse. These are Jesus' final words to his disciples. Just hours, spoken just hours before he is betrayed and crucified. So with that in mind, I'd like to read for us John 14, verses one to 11. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, will I come again? I will come again. And will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves." Beloved, there is my opinion, there is your opinion, and then there is the very word of God. What we've just read is the word of God. 
we should ask that he would teach us. Pray with me. Father, Son, and Spirit, speak to us today. Reveal your heart to us today. For there's nothing more we need than you to hear you speak, to taste and see that you are good. Lord, inflame our hearts with love for you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'll begin like this. We live in a culture of fear. And lots of times for good reason. There's terrorism, disease, death, predators, traffickers, natural disasters. One example that I hear every day is this. This will be the most consequential election in our lifetimes. Democracy is on the line. That line is being used by both the left and the right. And it is used to stoke the fires of fear in our hearts so that we will get out and vote. And the result? Well, just watch the news and listen to how people talk about one another. It's not a pretty picture. In his book, Running Scared, Ed Welch, who was one of my professors, writes, every single person who has ever lived is familiar with fear. Fear is natural to us. We don't have to learn it. It is an inescapable feature of earthly life. Echoing Welch, David Kinnaman, who is the CEO of the Barna Group, writes, anxiety blankets our society and our lives like a thick, wet, bone-chilling fog. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, anxiety also permeates the church. Does that statement offend you? Does that statement surprise you? It shouldn't. What is by far God's most frequent command? Do not have any other gods before me. Nope. You shall not commit adultery. Nope. It's do not be afraid. That command is given over 300 times in the pages of Scripture. And what that tells us, among other things, is that we are all prone to fear. And of course, fear is the context of our passage. Jesus begins... John 14, verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Now, 
Why does Jesus say this to his disciples? Well, it's because he has just dropped a series of bombs on them. In chapter 13, verse 21, Jesus says to his 12 closest and dearest friends, one of you will betray me. In verse 33 and again in verse 36, Jesus makes it very clear that he is going away. And where he is going, his disciples cannot follow. Where I am going, you cannot come. You cannot follow me now. And then in verse 36, he also says that before the sun rises the morning in the morning, Peter will deny him not once, not twice, but three times. Truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. The fact of the matter is, it is Jesus who will be betrayed. It is Jesus who Peter will deny. It is Jesus who will be abandoned by his closest friends. It is Jesus who is headed to the agony of the cross. It is Jesus who we are told in chapter 13, 21, is deeply troubled in spirit. The the Greek word translated troubled, used by Jesus to describe his disciples, is the same Greek word that is used to describe how he feels in verse 21. And yet, as D.A. Carson puts it, on this night of nights, when of all times it would have been appropriate for Jesus' followers to lend him emotional and spiritual support, he is still the one who gives who comforts, who shows compassion, who is patient, who is kind, who is gentle, who even instructs. That being said, if you're like me, you know that being told not to be afraid when you are afraid is at best empty counsel and at worst a cruel taunt. A person can't just flip a switch and turn off fear. But Jesus doesn't just say, let not your hearts be troubled, does he? He goes on, believe in God. Believe also in me. And then again in verse 11, Jesus says, believe in me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Now, What is Jesus saying? Do you understand? First, Jesus is is making a claim. In, In John 10, 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And in our passage, Jesus says, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Jesus is claiming the unthinkable. He is claiming equality with God. He says, like God, you can trust me. Like God, I am good. Like God, I am in complete control. Like God, I can and will accomplish that for which I've come. And like God, I love you with a love that will never let you go. Jesus is making an unbelievable claim. And second, Jesus is also calling them, and he is calling all of us who struggle with fear to what? To faith. Faith in the Father and faith in the Son. 
Faith not in general, but in God and in Jesus, as well as we will see in the weeks to come in the Spirit. Faith is the anecdote to fear. It was the anecdote then, and it's the anecdote today. Because as the author of Hebrews tells us, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But here's the thing. The disciples don't get it. Jesus knows that he is returning to the Father, to the glory that he enjoyed for all eternity with the Father. He knows that his return will be by the way of the cross. And he knows that on the cross, his glory will be most gloriously displayed. But he also knows that his disciples can't and won't see it as such at least until the other side of the resurrection. Rather, until then, they will be utterly and completely devastated. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel afraid or anxious or discouraged or downhearted or even devastated? Like the disciples, we need the words of Jesus in our passage. In this upper room discourse, again to quote D.A. Carson, Jesus' words provide not only some immediate relief, but also the framework that ultimately makes sense of the most important events in all of history. And if his words could bring comfort and lead to understanding to his disciples in this singularly unique moment in redemptive history, they can bring us comfort and lead us to understanding in our day and age. So what does Jesus say to his disciples and to us to bring comfort and lead to understanding? Well, the first thing is that Jesus reorients Our perspective, look at verses 2 and 3. In my house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know where I am going. Jesus knows that his disciples can't see past the present moment of crisis, past their immediate circumstances. And so with these words, Jesus is reorienting their perspective. What do I mean? Jesus is reminding his disciples and he's reminding us that this world as it is, is not our home. As the apostle Peter reminds us, we are sojourners and exiles As the Apostle Paul reminds us, our citizenship is in heaven. As the author of Hebrews reminds us, we are headed to a better country, a heavenly one, a city prepared for us by God. Beloved, Jesus is reminding his disciples, he is reminding us that this world as it is, is not all there is or all that ever will be. 
as the Apostle Peter tells us in his first letter, God the Father, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefilable, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Of course, in that moment, the disciples felt like they were walking through the valley of the shadow of death. They knew Psalm 23, like you by heart, but they had forgotten its end. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so often, so do we. We live like today is all there is. And the result, fear. And yet what Jesus says to his disciples and what he says to us is keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your eyes on Jesus. This world as it is is not all there is. In my father's house, are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Jesus says to his disciples and he says to us, believe in God Believe also in me. But here's the thing. The disciples, they don't get it. They don't understand. And so after reorienting their and our perspective, Jesus goes on to replace our source of comfort. Again, Jesus has just said, if I go to a place, if I, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. What do you think Jesus is talking about when he says that he goes to prepare a place for you? I suspect I don't need to say this, but heaven is not a work in progress, like the Ultium factory on National Highway. And Jesus is not a divine general contractor heading to the job site. Jesus says in Matthew 25, 34, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from when? From the foundation of the world. So what does he mean that he's going to prepare a place for you? Well, I love how John Piper answers that question. He writes, What is not yet ready, not yet prepared, is the way to get your room in God's presence. Sin has not been atoned for, and Jesus is the Lamb of God about to be slain. The wrath of God, the condemnation, the curse is unsatisfied, and Jesus is about to become a curse for us and bearing our condemnation and enduring the bruising of the Father. Death is yet to be defeated, and Jesus is about to give his life 
and take it back from the jaws of death. In other words, it is the going itself by way of the cross that prepares the place for Jesus' disciples. But it's clear from Thomas's response that he still doesn't understand. Thomas says in verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Thomas thinks that Jesus is just going away, just geographically going somewhere else, and that what he needs and what the other disciples need are directions, that they need a map, they need a disclosed destination, they need coordinates for their GPS. They think that Jesus is blazing a trail and they need to follow him, meaning that at the end of the day, they're going to have to get wherever it is that Jesus is going by their own effort and perseverance. Now, you've got to keep this in mind. The disciples are not only troubled because Jesus is going away. They are. But they are also troubled because one of them is going to betray him. They are also troubled because Peter, to whom Jesus said, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter is going to deny Jesus. And the question they have to be asking themselves is this. If one of us is going to betray Jesus, his nearest and dearest friends, and if Peter... If Peter's faith is going to be shattered, what, what about me? Will my faith weather the storm? Will my faith last whatever is about to happen? And of course, we know the answer to that question, don't we? Hours later, when Jesus is arrested, what do all the other disciples do? Matthew 26, 56, all the disciples left him and fled. And here's the thing. Jesus knows it. And he doesn't chastise his disciples. He doesn't reprimand them. He doesn't castigate them. He doesn't condemn them. Instead, he says this. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you hear the grace of those words? What is Jesus saying to Thomas and what is he saying to us? He's saying the same thing. He's saying what the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism penned as the answer to the first question, what is your only comfort in life and death? Do you remember the answer? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. 
He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to Jesus. Beloved, this is the comfort of the gospel. It's not what my hands have done, but thy work alone, O Christ. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And he says to his disciples and he says to us, believe in God. Believe also in me. But his disciples still don't get it, do they? So after reorienting our perspective and replacing the source of our comfort, the third thing Jesus does in this passage is is he recalibrates the desires of our hearts. Let me ask you a question. What makes heaven heaven? Some might answer, well, there will be no sickness there. Some might answer, my mother, my father, my grandmother, my grandfather will be there. I want to be with them forever. Some might say, the beauties of this earth pale in comparison to the beauties of the new heavens and the new earth. Some might say, well, there will be no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more conflict, no more natural disasters, no more man-made disasters. Someone else might say heaven is a place of eternal love and joy and peace. And here's the thing, all that is true, but all that does not make heaven heaven. What makes heaven heaven? It's the very presence of Jesus. Where Jesus is, there is Heaven. Now, why do I point this out? Because Jesus says in verse 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. The fact of the matter is you and I and all people were created for union in communion with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And ever since Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden, every person who has ever walked the face of the earth has walked with an irresistible, insatiable yearning in their hearts. We don't know what we want, but we try to fill it. We try to satisfy this yearning with anything and everything that comes our way. We pursue possessions. We pursue experience. We pursue power. We pursue comfort. We pursue relationships. We pursue security. 
In The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis calls this the secret signature of each soul, the incommunicable and unappeasable want. But nothing ever satisfies. In his book, Heaven, Randy Alcorn writes, we may imagine we want a thousand different things, but God is the one we really long for. His presence brings satisfaction. His absence brings thirst and longing. Our longing for heaven is a longing for God. Or as St. Augustine penned in his confessions, O God, you have formed us for yourself and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. You know, you know it's true. Because if you get what you want, what always happens? When I was young, I wanted a G.I. Joe with Kung Fu grip. Yeah. Christmas came around. I got my G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip. I played with him for a while. But what happened? Eventually, inevitably, you could find G.I. Joe in the back of my closet under a pile of dirty laundry. That's what happens. That's what always happens. Why? Because you were created. I was created for Jesus. Jesus is what you really want. Jesus is what you really need. Jesus is who we really desire. And when he returns... When the new heavens and the new earth are joined and we sit down at the wedding supper of the Lamb as the bride of Christ, we will finally be fully satisfied. In verse 4, Jesus is making a promise to his disciples and he is making a promise to us. I will come again. And will take you to myself, and where I am, that where I am, you may also be. He says to his disciples, believe in God, believe also in me. Again, his disciples don't get it. So after reorienting our perspective and, and replacing the source of our comfort and recalibrating the desires of our heart, lastly, Jesus reminds us that he perfectly reveals the Father. Six times, six times in these few verses, Jesus says virtually the same thing. I and the Father are one. That, that my presence is the Father's presence. What this means is that in Jesus, we see the image of the invisible God. We see the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. In Jesus, we know God. 
for he is God himself. And he comes not only to share the love of the Father with us, but also to share the knowledge of the Father with us. He comes that we might grow to know the Father as he knows the Father. What would your life look like if you believed, if you really believed that God is your Father? As we will see in the weeks ahead, Jesus prays these words to the Father. Father, the hours come, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus says to his disciples, and he says to us, believe in God. Believe also in me. Beloved, we live in a culture of fear. And sadly, Oftentimes, that fear makes its way into the church. As one pastor puts it, the world does not thirst for a religious imitation of itself. Let me say that again. The world does not thirst for a religious imitation of itself. So let me ask you one last question. What will happen if and when the truth of what Jesus teaches us in our passage takes root in our hearts even as we find ourselves living in a culture of fear. We will live fearless lives, taking up our crosses daily, loving our neighbors, yes, even loving and praying for our enemies. Seeking their welfare, seeking their good. Because in the words of Jim Elliot, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that for which he cannot lose. Because we know in the words of the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And what will be the result? In the words of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. May God make us into beautiful people that draw the nations not to us, but to him. Pray with me. Father, Son, and Spirit, thank you for your word. Thank you for this claim. And thank you for this call to believe in God and to believe in you. We confess, Lord, we struggle to believe. And that becomes evident in the way we look at people other than us, people who think differently than us, people who 
live differently than us, even people who vote differently than us. Oh, God, change our hearts, purify our hearts, make us like Jesus, that we might love you with all of our hearts, minds, souls, and strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.